people. Hello and welcome to episode 180 of Blockchain Insider. I'm Mauricio Magaldi, Global Strategy Director for Crypto at 11FS. And I'm joined by my co-host, Kai Sheffield, Head of Crypto at Visa. How are you doing, Kai? I am great. I can't believe we're already a month into 2023, but the, the year is off to a great start. Uh, I'm excited to, to get into the, the first new show of the year. First new show, lots to cover, lots to cover. So we're starting off with some pretty big announcements or big, big news. One is Europol reported 19.5 million in crypto seized in enforcement action against crypto exchange Betslato. Also, the National Australian Bank, the NAB, will create a stablecoin in its search for getting into the digital economy. Crypto lender Genesis filed for bankruptcy. So big, big news. To dig into this, we're also joined by some fantastic guests. Making a debut on the show, Kevin Depatul, CEO and co-founder of KeyRock. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, Mauricio. Hello, Kai. Very nice to meet you. Very happy to be here. Awesome. And another debut. Welcome, Zoe Wei, Head of Developer Relations at BNB Chain. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, Zoe? Very good. Very excited. Awesome. So before we dive in, just as a reminder to our listeners, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they are representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So do your own research. So let's get started. Europol reported 19.5 million in crypto seized in enforcement action against crypto exchange Betslato, the European Union Agency for Law Enforcement Cooperation, also known as Europol, has reported the authorities took control of crypto wallets containing more than 19 million in cryptocurrencies as part of the actions against Bitslato. In January 23rd, the announcement, Europol reported that roughly 46% of assets, around 1 billion euros, moved through Bitslato were linked to illicit activities. The government agency analysis suggested that Bitslato received more than 2.1 billion euro in cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Dash, and Dogecoin, much of which was converted into Russian rubles. So let's kind of start a little bit of the discussion. There's bad links in all of this. This came into a moment where people were expecting more discussion about proof of reserves and then, you know, an enforcement action as big as this comes out. Uh, there's a number of things going on as to crypto assets, fiat currencies, the conversion is not illegal. There's a bunch of investigation into cyber criminal operations indicated by the Europol. Loads of suspicions uh, are linked to entities sanctioned by the OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, uh, linked to cyber scam, money laundry, ransomware, etc. So is this a surprising announcement? And if it's so, why? So I'm going going with you, Kevin. Why do you why what do you think about this? To be honest, like so, when this announcement initially was made, I think it was uh, like the the very first announcement around Bitslato was uh, around end of December, right? I mean, the first uh, surprise around it is that it was everybody I think was expecting something much bigger, though, uh, if uh, if if I recall properly, because the announcement was made in a very kind of a you know formal fashion uh, by the the DOJ as well. So everybody thought it was going to be I don't know something massive and really earth earth shattering for the the industry as a whole. So I guess that that was kind of a a first surprise, but then the way I look at this is as something that is very positive. I mean, clearly based on 
the facts that are currently known. This was a, um, a clearly a toxic actor for the, the industry as a whole, and therefore I think it's, it's good to see that um, that regulators are able to uh, uh, to take the uh, appropriate measures to um, to put it to an end. Of course, this is said purely based on the facts that are currently known, right? But so I think that altogether having some kind of filtering of bad actors on the market should always be taken as a positive for those that are you know, uh, building in crypto for other reasons than regulatory arbitrage or lack of clarity. So clearly I take that as a, as a positive for the industry as a whole. Any repercussions you've seen in particular, Zoe, that kind of spiked your interest about this story? I think this story is pretty, uh, it's pretty good. Actually, from the industry perspective, I agree with Kevin a lot. Like previously, people view crypto, okay, it's dangerous and uh, it's money laundering. And after this, people realize that, okay, so uh, government can come in and they can identify who's a good player and bad player. So and uh, so the funds uh, are clearly under scrutiny by the different governments, including Europe, US, and now the whole global, the whole legal framework established. So basically, then this will be um, go move to the more mass adoption that people feel, okay, um, if I lose something, there's something recovered and I'm under the legal protection. So I think this is a very good move and um, uh, it shows that uh, crypto is just a neutral tool so people can use it for good. Yes, someone can definitely use it for bad, but it's under control like the traditional financial market. Got it. Kai, we've been seeing a lot of bad actors being doxxed and washed out of the market in the last 12 months. Uh, This seems great because for us who you know, for those of us who are in the industry, it seems that this is cleaning up, but everyone outside of the industry looks at this and, and, and says like, that's all they have. That's all Ponzi schemers and, you know, people funding illegal activity everywhere in the world. We know this is not how we can turn that perception around while still doing great work and cleaning up the industry. So, so one of my first reactions to this, and and to Kevin's point, it was kind of like an announcement of an announcement. It was like it was like a Reuters report of like big announcement coming. Uh, I had never heard of Bits Lotto before, and I think a lot of other people in the crypto ecosystem, uh, it wasn't an exchange that was well known or that was used, and so um, I think it was just very much great that we're identifying and pushing you know, bad actors out. And I think it would be much more damaging to the reputation of the ecosystem if it was a large, well-known exchange that a lot of people knew, a lot of people used, a lot of people trusted versus to have an exchange where it sounds like this was the business, a big part of the business that they were in uh, and that they were caught. And I think it also speaks to the uh, growing sophistication from law enforcement and governments and regulators across the world and how to actually detect illicit activity and pursue and, and successfully bring bring it to, to justice. And so I think the work that uh, some of the software companies like Chainalysis and TRM and, and others are doing is just continuing to get you know better and better in the adoption of those tools. Um, and it's it's somewhat of an arms race of, you know, you have like so many techniques that people are using to try and hide funds and then uh, ultimately, it's great that there are tools out there that are leading to successful um, actions, you know, like this one. And I think it's it's important for the whole space to to be able to move on to to not have actors like this in it. I, li- I like to take on on the uh, the obscurity of things being done for shady actors, and then they use the blockchain, and then the blockchain kind of you know shows everything that they're doing, and that is kind of built-in as, as a feature for blockchain-based businesses such as cryptocurrencies. 
but this is a small player, right? And there's like 2.1 billion worth of assets flowing through it that were illegal, over half of the assets that went through it. So I think in terms of numbers, this seems like big, big numbers for such a small player uh, that then turned out to be, you know, ousted, you know, doxed by the, by the authorities and, and the analysis. Is, is this something that is kind of peculiar to this case? Do you guys think it's harder for bigger players to participate in illicit activities now that we're talking about blockchain-based applications such as cryptocurrencies? What do you think, Kevin? This is something that is going to be increasingly easier for us to do as an industry and, and therefore is probably also an incentive for traditional finance to adopt such level of transparency. I mean, first thing on the on the number, you know, so seeing those uh, billions flew like were transiting through the exchange, but over over what period of time, right? And is it is it actually big? I mean, if you if you compare this uh, these two billions with you know the the the, the non uh, AML uh, uh, controlled transaction that can take place, you know, over a year in traditional finance, or at least on the same period of time, because you know how, for for how long was this exchange specifically in operation and 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 doing these malevolent activities? I don't know. Is it really that big if you compare it to what is being done in cash uh, uh, every day and you know in the whole in the whole world? I'm I'm not sure that those numbers are actually that that enormous, especially without having a, a time period in, in mind, right? So, um, but it, it, I do think to, to your point, yes, the, the, the whole reason why why blockchain is interesting, uh, I mean, a big chunk of it is, is transparency. So this is something that should eventually, uh, should eventually uh, help uh, decrease the, the number of such uh, uh, acti activities and, and, and scams and, and, and money laundering if you do combine this with a an appropriate, you know, uh, um, I guess, a regulatory framework uh, and, uh, and and KYC. But how can you balance that out with, you know, the, the innovation of decentralized finance as well? I guess those are all the topics that we will will touch on as well. But in, in general, I, I would say that yes, it's uh, the transparency that comes with the technology is definitely a, a plus if you want to to reduce, um, you know, such bad actors basically. Yeah, Kai touched on a point about uh, forensics companies and analytics companies uh, for on-chain data they are increasingly becoming more sophisticated and more visually appealing and easier to use and all of that stuff. From your work on BNB chain, Zoe, is there anything you've seen in addition to these players, I mean, that you're excited about on-chain analytics that would help us to become an increasingly more transparent industry? Yeah, I think um, on BNB chain side, everything is easy to track. And I think the whole, if you see the whole industry, very, very, very simple. CEX and the DEX and the whole crypto. So basically, if all the SACs can do the proper KYC and the regulation, so basically all the information, you, 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 the, the gateway from fiat to crypto, crypto fiat are controlled. And then it's, it's easy to do the check and to do all the transactions. And all, it's, as long as all the transactions on the chain, on BNB chain, um, everything is so transparent. And you can trace the account back to how, no matter how, how many wallets you're using, the easy trace back to uh, which like this uh, centralized uh, exchange, decentralized exchange, which coin flip uh, you send to which wallet and which wallet is linked to which transaction. It's all can be like digested uh, by multiple uh, on-chain analytics. The good thing is not like the traditional finance, only several auditing firms can do this. On blockchain, everyone, as long as you have the specialty, you can do this. And you can also disagree with the auditing result from one uh, firm say, okay, you're wrong because here's the pattern on chain. So that's the amazing part. So basically, as long as the regulator could do a proper um, regulation on the 
on the centralized exchange because as long as you get in centralized, it's off-chain. So on-chain part is, is pretty secure. Um, yeah, and that's my opinion. So that's the reason, and the reason for this, um, this case is actually the centralized exchange is not under regulation. So it becomes the gate to do. But even if it's the gate, um, you can still track the, both the fiat part and the, the crypto part on-chain, yeah. I think maybe if I, if I may, that's a very interesting point, right? Because um, the example here of Bitslato is a, a classic example of kind of, you know, top-down uh, top regulatory enforcement and control, right? But I think that uh, as, as Zoe is pointing, what blockchain allows is everybody to play that part and to have actually a lot more bottom-up uh, control as well, right? And I think that one example uh, that was very clear last year, I mean, in the big bull market, uh, there was a, an insider trading scandal on OpenSea. And this was not something that was brought to light by the SEC, right? This was brought to light by uh, by uh, just a user on Twitter that noticed some weird things on chain and decided to, to talk about it. So I think it's, uh, it's yes, you can still have kind of that, that classic top-down uh, control that we're seeing in, in this case, but as Zoe, Zoe points out, the radical transparency allows to have also kind of a bottom-up control and anybody to contribute, which I think, you know, down the line is a is a very, very strong positive. Nice. Kai, before we wrap up this point and jump to the next one, do you think that this is an indication of more enforcement, more regulation, more, you know, uh, citizen journalism or forensics, as Kevin indicated? W what does this indicate for us going forward? I think all of the above, and, and we talked about this of just kind of everything that's happened over the past six months, one of the outcomes has just been a lot more scrutiny and people closely watching you know, centralized exchanges uh, in both you know regulators in law enforcement as well as individuals. And so, you know, the, the Zach XBTs of the world and these like on-chain sleuths that are, you know, closely following exchange wallets, they're closely following you know, what people are doing. And and I think it's going to take you know, that combination to, to figure out you know, how to clean up the space. That's great. So I'll hand it over to you for the NAB news. Yeah, so moving on to the next story. So National Australia Bank has become the second of the major banks in Australia to create a stablecoin uh, called the AUDN. Uh, and so this is uh, backed uh, by Australian dollars. And it will initially allow business customers to settle transactions uh, on a blockchain uh, in real time. And they're aiming to launch it uh, mid-year. And so I think first, one of the, the interesting things you know, about this to me is you know, we're seeing this spectrum of different fiat, different types of fiat-backed digital currencies. And so everyone's familiar with CBDC on one end of you know, central banks creating it. Uh, and then you have stable coins created by fintechs you know, on the other end, banks are starting to participate. And they're saying, can I create this legal tokenized deposit that I can then issue you know, on a, a blockchain? And so uh, maybe Kevin, starting with you of just, what's your thoughts on how the stable coin landscape is evolving and what is the role for banks? Do you think banks will be successful in bringing to market, you know, some of these products, or, or how do you think this plays out? So, I mean, I, I think it's very. I'm a big fan of stable coins, right? If you, uh, so you know, Kirok, we're a market maker, which means that we trade on many on many different markets at once. We often need to to send funds around, and believe me, my life would be a lot. I mean, and my team's life would be a lot harder if we didn't have stable coins. So, I, I'm I'm definitely a big fan of of stable coins in general and the kind of uh, of ease of use that they provide and efficiency that they provide, right? So, uh, then the question comes, you know, uh, can bank be successful i think that 
what is interesting when you look at uh, at stablecoins, why are they currently used? Are they used because they are um, you, you get rid of of, uh, of certain intermediaries, or are they used simply because they are more efficient and practical? And the reality today, if you look at you know the the, the, the biggest stablecoins, they are very uh, it's a very centralized you know project that are massively used simply by because they are more practical. So it is not uh, it is clearly not necessary for a stablecoin to be successful to really be fully decentralized. It's it's not the case. I think it's very good that you can have both, right? Depending on on why you decide to use a particular coin, but it's not uh, a necessity to its success. Very clearly, then comes the question on who do you decide to trust to actually issue and back. Uh, a stable corner. I mean, in the current kind of centralized paradigm that we that we mostly live in when it comes to a change in value, the counterparties that are usually trusted with, with funds are banks because they also fall within a, a very strict regulatory framework. So uh, if you take the road of saying, okay, I want to be interacting with, um, with a centralized stablecoin, I do think that it very much makes sense for, for, for banks to, to step in and to use um, the, the trust that they have you know, from some, distrust that they have from, from others, potentially more in, in, in our industry for sure, but to leverage that, that trust and the, 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 the clarity of the, the regulatory framework that they that they are operating in to issue their own their own stablecoin, I think it does make sense. But if you look a, a, a bit, I think taking a, a, a step back, if you look a bit more on the the global kind of monetary uh, evolution, I think it's very interesting that we have kind of more and more, you know, local local currencies, so to speak. Of course, they are always backed by by fiat, you know, issued by central banks. So it's just kind of a proxy to have something more digital. But it is an interesting evolution that, you know, we've evolved towards less and less currency. And now we go towards more and more issuers of those same currencies. I think it's a it's an interesting uh, symptom of, to some extent, uh, a, a lack of trust or a lack of uh, ability of the current kind of, you know, large issuers of currency to keep up with the pace of innovation that we now have to rely on local players to actually, you know, uh, catch up. I think it's a very interesting evolution in, in general. Yeah, so on, on that point, Zoe, you know, from what we've seen, you know, over 90, I think 99% of stablecoins today are backed by dollars. Uh, and so, you know, there have been a number of attempts to create euro stablecoins and Australian dollar stablecoins, but it just by sheer volume and circulating supply, they're very small. And so do you think that, you know, particularly in your ecosystem on, on BNB chain, is there demand to have a tokenized you know, version of every fiat currency? Or do you think that ultimately when people have access to a blockchain, they want the largest currency in the world, which are dollars, and then you have this, this concept of dollarization. So how do you think it plays out in terms of the, the different fiat currencies that are coming on chain? I think it's definitely a need for different fiat currency on chain. Uh, I give you an example. So um, previously, I worked at um, Binance for the for the fiat business. So basically, we're running the largest fiat crypto uh, currency pair. So you can see, like, there's a, if you're in Australia, definitely people will not trade um, USD based trading pair. Uh, no matter it's um, no matter so no matter it's like fiat based in other exchanges or like um, the USDC or USD. So Majority of people will use a uh, like uh, AUD to trade. It's a fiat against the cryptocurrencies. The reason is that usually, if I'm a fund in Australia, I need to use my base currency as the Australian dollar instead of the US dollar. So all the profit loss and the settlement, how my profits calculated, is under this framework. So and um, so usually, I just use this currency to trade. And so if I have a digital currency, that will facilitate my currency trading a lot and give me uh, access to broader uh, range of services. 
So I think that's definitely a, a huge market uh, to do. And previously, there's no very good regulation on how to issue crypto, a fiat backed of cryptocurrency in different jurisdictions other than US. US has very good, uh, at least structured regulation. So you it can issue through different licensed entities. So you can actually get that currency out and you get audited by by reputable forms. So, but in other ones, like it's still uh, obscure previously, but now I think uh, governments are realizing this and moving this forward. Like in Europe, uh, I think you, if you see the uh, the Mika, uh, the, the law come out and uh, it's a banned algorithm driven um, stable coin, but actually it says it could do the free about the stable coin, but you have, need to have certain license and you need to do uh, stuff things to do, but I think this turn of the time is a little bit slow. But uh, I think Europe uh, will have some very legal stable coin come out very soon. Um, as the, the, all the trading here in Europe is still based in Euro, and I think it's very important. And in the future, I think on the countryside, they also want to strengthen their currency. And I think crypto will be a very, very good tool for them because the settlement cost between cryptocurrencies and its speed is, is much, much faster, smooth and cheaper than any other like traditional um, inter-country inter transaction mechanism and the networks. So if they want to do, they need to have that. So, so I, will, I, will, I will think maybe in the future, uh, each country will authorize certain banks the very uh, large entities can do similar business because they want to strengthen their um, their own currency. For sure. So it seems like banks have a, a big role to play here. And Mauricio, you, you've spent plenty of time in, in your career talking to banks. Like banks issuing stable coins on public blockchains? I it's, In this story, I believe that they've mentioned Ethereum. Uh, how do you see that playing out of like, you know, permissioned versus public? Uh, and also, could you want to comment on some of the use cases of, you know, carbon trading and, and how, you know, you think that they're approaching this? Yeah, I, I, I'm a positive supporter of going public blockchains. I think the fact that you're trying to circumvent the public use of money with private permission blockchains is it's illogical if you think about the nature of money, right? Money need it's 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 a money on the blockchain. If you limit the use, then you're limiting the use of money, which is probably against most sovereign laws in countries. So I think it's it's important to kind of put that into perspective. I really like the fact that they're going for some specific use cases for this stablecoin, uh, short-term finance, bond markets, cross-border remittances, and carbon credit trading, um, because I think. You have to start with something that is uh, useful within the adjacencies of your business. And they're a bank. They probably do that on fiat already. So by the fact that they're moving into stablecoin means that they're going to be able to be more efficient in how they deal with, uh, with their balance sheet. But also, uh, they're starting to digitize more of those supply chains that they're part of. And I think we're seeing a lot of strength in the stablecoin progress within the markets with the few recent news, right? Uh, we had that case from the Portrait Guardian that we mentioned last year from JP Morgan with Aave and DBS in Singapore doing tokenized deposits and bond trading. Moody's announced that they are launching a stablecoin rating this year, which means that this seems to be 
you know, turning into a serious thing if you have Moody's telling people how risky you are. Sorry, did, did Moody's say if it was centralized only or also centralized and decentralized? No, you know? they, they announced that they're going to do a rating that's probably going to cover, you know, initial ones like the bigger players and then roll into the more uh, uh, obscure or, or less sophisticated ones or the novelty ones. But the fact that they're entering the market is significant. And Uniswap just released um, with, uh, with Circle a paper on the benefits of using effects on-chain for cross-border remittances uh, in corporate treasury management. So I think it's, 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 the evidences are mounting. Like It's really important that we come to terms with stablecoins are here now. If, if crypto had no killer use case with cryptocurrencies because they're too volatile, stablecoins resolve that. So I think we, we all need to leverage that, as Kevin was saying, for trading, for DeFi, right? So stablecoins, I think, tokenized forms of money, as you, as you said earlier, are really something that I think is going to push forward the adoption of crypto in multiple use cases. And I'm really interested to see the role that the banks are going to play, especially when we combine different forms of tokenized money, as you said, CBDCs and stablecoins, they're probably going to coexist, right, to different capacity within the banking stack. So I'm super excited to see the developments in that direction as well. All right, so that wraps up this first part of the show. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibilities, and Visa's helping everyone take part. Consumers can now enjoy the freedom and flexibility of using their Visa crypto link cards for everyday purchases at millions of Visa-accepting merchant locations around the world. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Heads up, people. We've got a brand spanking new report dropping very soon. The 11FS Pulse Report 2023 will officially land later this month. What were the best fintech user journeys of 2022? Which UX trends are set to take the new year by storm? All of this will be answered and more with winning insights from our 11FS Pulse team experts and global industry leaders. Go to info.11fs.com slash pulse-report to download and to find out more. That's info.11fs.com slash pulse-report. We can't wait to share what we've been working on. All right, welcome back. For the second half of the show, we're going to start with this news about Genesis. So Genesis, the crypto lender, filed for bankruptcy. The firm recently uh, was charged by the U.S. regulator, uh, the SEC, Securities Exchange Commission, with illegally selling crypto securities in crypto form. They are part of DCG, the Digital Currency Group, which is a conglomerate of crypto folks' business, uh, over 200 of them. The insolvency of Genesis is also linked to this contagion effect from the bankruptcy of FTX. Uh, late last year, Genesis was originally set up as an OTC, over-the-counter Bitcoin trading, uh, that enabled the trading of large amounts of crypto and now evolved into this kind of crypto lender business. They announced a recent uh, layoff of 30% of the staff, cutting off 145 employees amidst all of that, right? So 
we've seen last year coming from Terra Luna, Three Arrows Capital, then rolling to November with FTX, and now the contagion of FTX is kind of taking um, some of the correlated companies in its wake. Is this a real domino effect that everyone is in bed with everyone and now we're seeing the, the wake of all of that mess? Uh, is, there a, is there an end to it? What, what will it take for us to actually, as an industry, stop the bleeding? I'm going to start with you, Zoe. Is there anything in your mind that you say, if we do these three things, we should be good to go? We should be bouncing off of this period in history. I think it's really similar to the like different financial crisis in the history in Unix and globally, how this running some financial institutions broke and stuff. So basically, I think first for those like lending business or like this business, they should have uh, regulation on them. So basically, um, how, how much money can, can they put on reserve? How to, what's the rule for land out? What's the, what's the other ways? Like, can you use them? Uh, what assets can you be, can be used and what assets cannot be used? I think those rules are not clear in crypto and uh, they're all off chain. So you cannot see very clearly. And uh, so that's the first thing you need to, you need to change, like how to, what's the, what can do and what can't do for those institutions in the in the future runs is, is very important. And they need to prove some reserve proof on the rules for them and the public side that instead of they just show okay how much money I gain like for that. Otherwise it cannot be too very easily. And uh, I think the, the, the second thing is actually for the public reporting. So if you uh, what kind of financial institute should have some good public reporting on the assets they have and that they do so um, this part, if it's, if it's on-chain, then it's very clear. If it's on-chain protocol, you can see clearly, even a third party, you can do the data analytics on that. But if it's a centralized one, so you really need to put a really good public reporting to and with auditing uh, on that uh, for, for people to know. Um, otherwise, it will be really hard because people, if unregulated, people hold up tons of money and then it's easy to uh, move around and, and stuff. And also the third part will be, um, what are the good projects to do? And this is kind of internal the risk control. So this will be, um, traditional finance will be the government structure. So you need a board, you need anything to, maybe in crypto world, we don't need such a very complicated way, but we still need an internal risk control rule to see what kind of projects, how to develop projects, how to make sure uh, it can be sustainable, when to stop fund, when to continue to fund. So you can, there's um, a way to measure the risks. So I think if that could be internally be done for different institutions, then it will be, that will be easy for us to prevent the next round uh, on that. Yeah. Got it. Now, Kevin, most of the companies, the crypto companies that went down, other than for the reason of pure fraud, and I'm going to set it aside for now, they were dubbed crypto lenders. And we know that there's DeFi lending protocols that continue to operate regardless of the market and continue to function. If there's a collateral that they need to slash, there's slashing and the blocks continue to be produced and all of that good stuff. Question to you, is there a place for centralized lenders in crypto? And what would it take for them to be a sustainable business like a DeFi lender seems to be? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a place for 
centralized lender in crypto, like there's a place for centralized lenders in any other asset class, right? But uh, it's uh, for me what what these events show is that it's great to trust, but it's a lot better to verify, and that's uh, it's it's a lot it's even more the case for centralized entities. Like why? You wouldn't go and you know uh, you, you wouldn't start lending and borrowing with an entity right around the corner that you never never heard of or does you know has no control over whatsoever and that's why would you do that with Bitcoin? I mean you just uh, if you look at what are the practices that that brought these players down? I mean we're talking about massive loans uh, vastly under collateralized to you know uh, very dark entities like what is I, I don't know if you look at Genesis now which is public information like the 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 position that they still have open towards 3AC is over a billion dollars what was the original loan and what was the due diligence that was actually done you know in the financials on 3ROs which is a single entity before before making that loan it's why would we how is the business model of a centralized lender on digital asset any different from the same business on traditional finance it isn't and so i don't see any reason why we shouldn't have the same scrutiny and the same control so i do think that the same way that you can do you know uh, centralized lending very well on traditional asset and it's being done by you know hundreds of entities hundreds of companies that have proper risk management that have proper proper balance sheet management in place and control over those because again you can trust they will but it's better to verify that they actually do um you have that you should be able to have exactly the same in in, in digital assets right but it's, it shouldn't be different set of rules or different set of best practices just because it's it's crypto. If it's fully centralized, it's fully centralized. And it doesn't matter what is the, the asset that you're lending and borrowing. It should be the same types of control and scrutiny and, and due diligence. So 100%, I think that there is a space for centralized lenders very, very successfully doing their business in, in digital assets. And there are some of them that continue to operate, of course, right? What uh, what we've seen over the year are just uh, individual failings in, in, in risk management and... Um, and, 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 and its consequences, basically. Now, Kai, I think we've tapped into this a little bit uh, earlier, but, but I think it's, it's worthwhile mentioning that crypto Twitter was a buzz, right? This is the place where people get yelled at to their faces on a daily basis when something like this happens. And that was no different for this case. While we had the Winklevi twins, uh, their own Gemini, the exchange, they had relationship, business relationships with DCG and Genesis, especially because through Gemini, they offered the earned product to their customers, right? And, and we all know that when things go sour, we need to look into the consumers and how protected they are. And obviously that led to a bunch of finger pointing uh, on crypto Twitter. What is your take on this? Does it need to be thrown into the public audience like this? Is there a better way of handling this you know, this is not only a PR nightmare, this is an, a de facto nightmare for the people involved. What is the best way for us, again, as an industry to try and tackle these things without having to, you know, air the laundry on crypto Twitter? Yeah, I, I wish I knew. I, I don't I don't have a, <laughs> much of a perspective on how, how to, I, I think that the question is, how do you prevent these things from happening in the first place? I, I think that's the, the biggest thing as an industry. And I think Kevin covered it really well of like, just not having mature risk management in a lot of these crypto lending businesses. And and I think the way that some of these products were marketed versus you know what underwriting was done behind the scenes was very different. And so, you know, in the days of you know a bunch of products saying, you know, high yield interest accounts that were, oh, everything is is over collateralized and and so, you know, there's not going to be a default because if, if the value of the collateral drops, we'll liquidate it. That's a very different product than 
we're trusting this large you know, fund uh, and we're going to let them borrow from us in an uncollateralized way. And then the losses you know, will impact you know, any consumer that's you know, provided you know, capital to it. So I, I think it's, it's not inherently a crypto risk. It's, it's just how you run a, a lending business and, and do risk management. I think it's interesting. I mean, DCG has played such a major role in the crypto space, you know, for so long and has so many different entities. Um, you know, you could kind of see Coindesk, they really discovered some of the initial uh, peculiar peculiarities or weird things that happen with FTX. And so, you know, they, in many ways, like, um, you know, brought a lot of it to light. And then you had uh, Grayscale, you know, being kind of a, a source, uh, p- kind of a Grayscale trade being involved in, you know, some of the large funds that were borrowing. And so it is interesting of just with the industry being small, like how much influence, you know, one entity has had across multiple businesses. And I I think that there's absolutely a future of of crypto lending, both centralized and decentralized but I think after this experience and seeing how many lenders got wiped out, you know, the the way that these businesses are built and the risk management they use has to to change going forward. Um, no, I really like that because you know it's it's just common sense, which is not very common, that same product, same rules. So if you're doing bank-like things for bank-like products with bank-like customers, you should be regulated like a bank-like entity. And if you do bank-like, you know, criminal activity, you're gonna bank be bank-like punished. And I think that's safe to say that um, as we get into more mature phase of this industry, we're going to see maybe not new regulation, but better regulation or better application of these uh, uh, regulatory requirements across the industry. So we can all be seen as not just, you know, crypto degens, but actually adults doing real business. So in this part of the show, we want to quickly round up some of the other stories from the month that we didn't have time to cover but still deserve a shout out. So I'll start off with Eurostablecoin EURR had its issuance seized by the protocol eMoney. They announced that they're seizing the issuance of EURR, a stablecoin pack to the euro, citing current market conditions as the reason. They seized the issuance in January 9th with the redemption of the stablecoin supported until March 6th, according to their announcement. Given the current market conditions, that effort was unfortunately reached a stage where it's prudent and responsible to wind it down, said eMoney. Users with large amounts of EURR can redeem their coins directly for euros with eMoney. Those with smaller amounts can swap their EURR to other cryptos on the Cosmos Bait exchange Osmosis. So this is kind of a lesson in risk management, as we were discussing, right? They saw a risk... They feel that they cannot maintain the peg of the uh, EURR stablecoins, so they're winding down the operation. Now, this works for smaller stablecoins of less traded pairs like the euro in the crypto world, but if it comes to pass on a large USD-pegged stablecoin, we would see many, many more headlines and much, much more scrutiny on this. So, one, glad we have the experience. Two, glad we had this experience with a smaller player, and I'm hoping everyone can redeem or you know makes the effort to redeem their euros on the exchanges and and the OTC at eMoney as well. 
So Unstoppable Domains and Ready Player Me team up to create interoperable metaverse identities. Uh, so this is Web3 domain provider Unstoppable Domains uh, is teaming up with the company Ready Player Me. And so Ready Player Me lets people, you know, create, you know, their own, you know, avatar and then use it you know, across you know, many different, you know, platforms. And so if you connect it to your unstoppable domain, uh, you'll be able to use you know, a bunch of these apps you know, with this this avatar. So I've actually used it. It's, it's a pretty cool experience of like creating an avatar. It scans your face. There was like this physical activation they did. And I think avatars as a use case is one thing coming out of NFTs that very much uh, has a lot of room to run. And, and people don't want to have different avatars across every platform that they use. And so having one avatar that you can use across many seems like a logical direction for it to go. So the last one is German regulator warns of new banking and crypto malware Godfather. Germany's Federal Financial Supervisory Authority, BaFin, released an official statement on January 9th warning consumers of Godfather, a malware collecting user data in banking and crypto apps. Baffin emphasized that the new virus is targeting about 400 banking crypto apps, including those operating in Germany. The Godfather malware attacks users by displaying fake websites of regular banking and crypto apps, stealing their logging data. According to the regulator, it is yet to be determined how the malware attacks user devices. The malware is known to send push notifications to get the codes from two-factor authentication. Um, Buffin noted that, and I quote, with this data, the cyber criminals may be able to gain access to consumers' accounts and wallets, end quote. So again, we're talking about security in the context of UX. If you're a crypto app and you're not worried about the UX in the context of security, you're doing a disservice to your consumers. So we know that everyone is subject to be hacked or infected uh, or exploited. But the more we can do towards being enterprise grade in the world of crypto, the better it will be for the whole ecosystem. So if you are worried about the UX and how great UX work, I'll give you a hint. We, are, we have a Pulse report that just came out, 11FS Pulse. You don't want to miss it. This is valid for fintechs, and it's also valid for crypto. We need better UX so we can operate at better security. For this last segment of today's show, we're going to bring the panel back in. And I want to take a look at what the news and headlines have been grabbing their attention this month. So let me start with you, Kevin. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you feel um, you know, really excited about in the industry? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's two two things. One uh, maybe a, a bit less recent than the other, but you know, the the first thing that really got my attention was you know the the, the declaration of that you know little fund manager that is the CEO of BlackRock, uh, talking about how tokenization is you know the way forward for all securities and is the next like big uh, techno evolution um, you know for financial markets. I think that is you know hugely hugely exciting, of course. But I think that was still you know last month uh, of this month, very much more recent. I was uh, very excited to see the, the shadow fork that was announced on, on Ethereum and kind of progressing towards uh, uh, withdrawals and, and liquid staking, basically on Ethereum, which I think is a very, uh, very positive evolution as well. I mean, you know, the, what happened last year with Ethereum, I think, was to some extent a bit undervalued. Uh, the achievement was undervalued, you know, of that merge compared to all kind of the, the different blobs we had through the year, but it was an, a massive, you know, technical achievement. I think that seeing that continue and basically seeing the the, the 
the Ethereum devs continue to deliver on the roadmap is hugely, uh, hugely exciting. And of course, going towards more capital efficiency with the, the ability to withdraw that uh, staked Ethereum is, of course, uh, very, uh, very positive as well for the market as a whole, basically. Awesome. Zoe, what about you? I think there are like reasons, like I think today there are two, two news very interesting. So one is like uh, there is a report, Alex Circle actually uh, public cited report for its USDC uh, for $41.5 billion the report on how to use the how to flow. So it said how the transparency of the uh, crypto industry could be since USDC is very a very large uh, uh, stable coin. So you see how it could being the established at rules across different um, countries and the jurisdictions. And also you can see actually the crypto uh, mining revenue jumps up to like 50% to uh, 23 million in one month globally. So you can see although um, the yeah, crypto, uh, crypto market is very uh, impacted by the negative news recently for the past several months, we can see actually after the bad players are out like more and more Still more and more people want to come in and uh, the market will be, uh, I'm not saying like to go up, but it will be um, still towards the positive side and the growing and the people are building. So we still see uh, on the ambition side, we still see a lot of projects come in and um, people, the builders want to build, uh, students are interested to learn about crypto. So that would be the, that would be the good thing. Yeah. Kai, what's, uh, what's exciting you about the industry right now? A lot of progress on layer two scaling. Like it's awesome to see the growth of the existing optimistic rollups, uh, Arbitrum and, and Optimism, uh, and then you know the the new zk rollups, you know with zk Sync and Starknet and many others. And like there's just so many smart people building in this space. And you know while you know from the outside it's you know all of these you know, negative headlines and news, and then you start to you know get involved in the developer community and you just see that things that used to be major technical challenges uh, are being solved and, and improved upon on a regular basis. And so we're kind of entering this period that feels like it's like the protocol wars. And it's like you have you know many different credible teams and projects that are building really good tech. And you know I go around, I, I like to ask people, who, who's gonna win? Like what, what network is gonna win? And everyone I ask, like the most common answer is, I don't know. <laughs> like it's it's just too early to tell. There are different trade-offs. Like we don't know which are, are like, but it's it's just it's progress in fundamental technical innovations that are happening that are going to scale blockchains. And so I'm confident in the next few years, you know, there are going to be many options for developers to build on networks that you know can scale and that can reach you know many more consumers. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about the development of privacy on public blockchains. I think. The moment we really nail privacy in public blockchains, it's the institutional adoption for applications running on decentralized infrastructure is gonna soar. So yeah, I'm, I'm also connected to the whole layer too. And there's a bunch of, uh, as you said, great people developing also on the ZK space and on privacy solutions using blockchain. So super excited about that as well. So that wraps up this week's news show. Just a quick reminder to let you know that the views of our panel are their own and not necessarily the opinions of the companies that they're representing. Thank you so much to all our guests. So where can people find out more about you, Zoe? Um, you can find me um, probably on LinkedIn, uh, for Zoe Way, and also uh, on the Telegram. Oh, email, like uh, zoe at uh, bnbchain.org. So if there's anything you want to discuss about BNB Chain, yeah. Awesome, thank you. Kevin, how about you? 
Um, I guess the best is Twitter or LinkedIn. Yeah, so my name, Kevin Patrol or Kirok, Kirok Trading, can be found both on Twitter and LinkedIn. They're the best, best sources of news. Awesome. Thank you. Kai. On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. And you can find me as 0x Mauricio on Twitter, Mauricio Magaldi on LinkedIn, and obviously 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.